Well, you know, in the United States, one of the good slash bad things about this country is anyone can sue anyone for anything. <laughs> so, you know, if Marvin Gaye thinks his song's been stolen, he can sue Ed Sheeran. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Mint's Exclusive Rights IP Podcast. Dan Wanger, a partner here at Mint's, and I'm joined today with Andrew Scale, another partner here at Mint's who focuses his practice on commercial litigation, patent litigation, trademark litigation, all sorts of intellectual property, and entertainment law. And we're here today to talk about some recent developments or trends in the music industry related to copyright infringement and maybe touch on some other things. So, Andrew, welcome. It's good to have you here. Hey, thank you, Dan. Happy to be here. All right. I'm hoping that we can get into some what I find to be like an incredibly fascinating area of law, mostly because I, I just don't understand how some of these things happen. And I'm hoping you can help me understand it and maybe help whoever's listening understand what's going on, why these happen and what you can do about it if you're an artist trying to make your way in the crazy competitive entertainment world. I, I hear you and understand. But I think once people hear how the law works, they can appreciate it as a good balance between protecting the right holders and protecting new artists who are trying to come up with innovative works. It just seems like, just to provide some context to it, over the last few years, I think maybe the case that sticks out the most in people's minds is is when Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke were sued for copyright infringement for the Blurred Lines song. And it was a Marvin Gaye song, and that to my ear, I just can't hear it about why that's copyright infringement. And they, they had a jury verdict against them, $7.5 million judgment. So 7.3. 7.3. Could you provide some context for that? Like, how was that copyright infringement? Because when I listen to it, I just don't hear it. Well, if I recall, I don't, you know, I gotta, I'm gonna look back at this. I do think there was an admission at some point that uh, by Robin Thicke or by Farrell, where they said that, that this was inspired by Marvin Gaye's song. I gotta look back in the, the, what happened during the lawsuit. But putting that even aside, let's explain for the listeners how copyright infringement works. So copyright infringement is a little different than other areas of IP. So to infringe a copyright, you have to prove two things. One, you have to prove that, that you own a valid copyright. And two, you have to prove that it was copied. So what does that mean that the work was copied? And so there is two-part test to whether it was copied. And that test is that the infringer had access to your work and that it is substantially similar to the work, the underlying work, to the original work. So if you, Dan, come up with something without having heard or experienced or listened to the original work, you cannot infringe it. No matter how close it sounds, no matter how much it's, it's similar to, if you never had access to it, you won't be found to infringe. With that said, the law has looked at this from more of a realistic point of view. Uh, and so there was a, a lawsuit many years ago involving George Harrison. Mm-hmm. And so George Harrison, he wrote the song, My Sweet Lord. And the original song was the, the song, He's So Fine. 
And George Harrison, in that case, swore he had never heard of the song He's So Fine. The problem was, and the court recognized, He's So Fine was a very popular song. So the court surmised that Harrison must have heard it somewhere, albeit, you know, in an elevator or, you know, in a store. And so the court said, because they're so similar, I'm going to find that you had subconsciously heard it. And so they, that he must have had access to it. Uh, and so if your work is very similar to something else, it's going to be your burden to prove that you never had access to the original work. So in a non-music context, in one of my cases, there was a, an accusation of copyright infringement. And so we went through the computers to prove or show that my client had not seen the work. <laughs> it turned out, ironically, <laughs> that they actually had seen the work, which created a whole host of other issues. But that's one way you ordinarily could go and prove, oh, look, I never saw it. Look, my computer is clean. We never went to that website, never visited it. You could show that you know, today, now it's a little different than it was back then because a lot less people listen to the radio. And so you could say, hey, look, you look at the po- the stations I listen to, Spotify, it's never played, or something like that. You can try to prove that you actually never saw it. Does that kind of collapse on itself, though, where you're proving access by proving the similarity and the copyrights in the first place, which is what the whole point is in the first place? Correct. But it also recognizes that, I mean, there's infinite ways you can make music. There's so many different sounds, frequencies, tones, tunes, that you should be able to come up with something original. Now, I know your thinking, (laughs) I can read your mind on this, is like, well, you know, there's so much artists out there and so much music already out there. And so it's so likely to find, you can try to mesh two songs together and say they're similar, but it actually is not as easy as it sounds. Like, So in a case like the Robin Thicke one, there was experts that were talking about on both sides. They would take frequency diagrams of the music and show how the overlap is, play the two songs together. And they convinced the jury that the two were substantially similar. That's how we get to where we were. And so if you're an artist, which is, I think, the original question, what do you do? You really, really should focus on making sure what you're coming up with is original. And you would do that by not starting with something else. So don't, so I wouldn't, uh, for example, many times when people want to write a document, they'll start with some other document in the music world. Don't do that. You know, don't start with some sheet music and say, all right, I'm going to play with it to come up with my own. Cause that's going to, that's going to invite just problems and trouble. So you're saying try to try to start with a blank slate, but on a piece of paper, that makes a lot of sense. But how do you wipe your mind of all of, you're an artist who, who writes, you know, rock and roll, how are you supposed to wipe your mind of the Kiss songs that you grew up listening to or Metallica that you can't get away from? Like, those are imprinted in your brain. You can't get, you can't just clear your mind of that. Well, don't be thinking of these as you're coming up with the next song. You don't <laughs> be thinking of Kiss, your Kiss song from a teenager when you're writing your song. You have to be original. And look, that's that's what the, the law is intended to encourage, is it wants to encourage artists to make original works of art. Alternatively, you can do what some, a lot of bands do and just cover songs. You know, if you don't feel like writing something original, if you think it's too hard, then you'll pay the royalty to some other someone else and use their music or hire some writer to write your song for you. 
I mean, a lot of the big musicians today have writers that actually write the songs. Where's the line? So understanding what happened in, in Blurred Lines and the Marvin Gaye song, like it, it wasn't reasonable to think that an, an artist as ubiquitous as Marvin Gaye, that, that Robin Thicke and Pharrell had never heard their music. I'm sure that they had. Of course. Had. Correct. I'm sure that they had. And so then you're, it's a question of how similar it is. But Led Zeppelin and Spirit, which recently got decided in favor of Led Zeppelin, there's got to be some line between influencing your work as an artist and copying somebody's work as, as an artist. And if you're an artist out there, like how do you tell the difference between the two? Is it just going to be completely subjective and you'll find out afterwards? Or are there steps or something you can do in the, in the meantime to, to make sure you're on the good side of it? You can actually, I think there's some software that will, I know in the, in the software, in the coding industry, there's ways to do that. Like when I've had a lawsuit involving two pieces of software, we'll run it to do comparisons to show how dissimilar or similar it is. My sense is there'd be some type of mus- music software that might work that way. But at the end of the day, if you're inspired by someone, you really want to make sure it's as different as much as possible because there is no magic number. You'll hear people like lay people say, oh, as long as it's uh, you know 10% different or 30% different, it's, you're never going to get sued. There's no such thing as that. And there is no percentage because it's going to be up to the fact finder. Now, if it's if there's no if there's no similarity at all, then you get it thrown out on summary judgment, and so there'd be no or even as potentially a motion to dismiss. So you can't just you know one artist can't just sue every single artist and say that they've copied my music. It really does have to sound similar. I mean, have you and if you listen to like the Robin Thicke and Marvin Gaye songs back to back, they, there is you can hear the similarity. You definitely can, and so you really just have to make sure that you're creating something that's new and to do your best, do it, to do your best to make sure that it's new, that it's not, that I haven't borrowed any type of repeating music pattern or any of it. So what, what I, for this, I, I've listened to the comparisons many times because like I said, at the beginning of this podcast, I'm, I'm fascinated by these, by these lawsuits. But right before this podcast, I listened to the comparison of of uh, Blurred Lines and Marvin Gaye, and I can hear similar musical tones and a similar repeating pattern. So maybe that's an easier question for some of these. But then I look at like the the Ed Sheeran Marvin Gaye lawsuit, also involving Marvin Gaye. These two songs don't sound the same to me. So is there something you can look at in these songs that give it away that yeah, there's copyright infringement there because you can't hide from the fact that. Ed Sheeran had heard Let's Get It On. I mean, everybody in the world, in the Western world has heard Let's Get It On. Well, I think it was Thinking Out Loud. Thinking Out Loud, that's it, yeah. Well, you know, in the United States, one of the good slash bad things about this country is anyone can sue anyone for anything. (laughs) So, you know, if Marvin Gaye thinks his song's been stolen, he can sue Ed Sheeran. How copyright law protects against that is if he's wrong and they're not the same, then Marvin Gaye stands to pay the, the attorney's fees. So it's unlike most areas of, of U.S. law where loser pays, where, the, where both sides pay their own fees. Copyright does have a fee-shifting provision that does kick in if someone brings a baseless claim. And so you have to run that risk if it's not a very good claim. So if Marvin Gaye is just trying to be aggressive and, and sue everyone, he's going to have to pay fees in the end. And so it's got to be similar. And so 
And I don't, I'm trying to think with that one, what happened with that case? Is that still going on, right? It's, it's still going on. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, who knows what's going to happen with that? I mean, it could come out either way. Right. Well, you know, and so if the judge thinks it's close, he'll send it to the jury. And then it's up to the jury whether they think it's substantially similar or not. And if you're Ed Sheeran, you have hopefully you have nothing in your file that says that, uh, you know, you you were listening to Marvin Gaye when you wrote this song. Well, too too bad for Ed Sheeran because he's there's a video of him online where he mashes thinking out loud up with let's get it on by Marvin Gaye. Probably <laughs> so not at smart. Least, at least he at some point recognized that the two were pretty were pretty close. <laughs> yeah, that probably is what got well that and Marvin Gaye had a war chest already, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's not the first time he got it from Robin Thicke. <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. He's already, so he's like, look, I'm on a roll on these things. So one of the other questions I had is your thoughts on how this problem of, of making sure you're original. I don't know if I want to call it a problem or not, but the duty of the artist to, to make sure that what they're creating is, is original to avoid this. Doesn't isn't obviously just limited to to music, but there was something really interesting that happened in the last few months, and and I hadn't heard of it, but when I did hear of it, it was such a throwback to to when I was a kid when I played Magic cards. That there was a a card, an artist. For those who don't know, Magic the Gathering is a is a card game where you can actually play a game against other people, and you collect different cards. The sets refresh every couple of years to keep you buying them, basically. But the cards have different powers and what they're all covered in art where artists draw pictures of whatever the card is depicting. And um, recently there was a controversy because one of the Magic the Gathering artists drew a dragon that bore a striking resemblance to a dragon that had already been drawn by somebody else. So like, how could this artist have avoided what the pitfall that he went into? Because it seems like pretty clear that he had, you know, done something bad here. Oh yeah. I mean, what this artist was just lazy. There are so many different ways that the artist could have drawn, drawn this dragon and the artist just used another dragon instead of being creative. In fact, I think I, I later read that uh, the artist actually admitted that he had used the other artist's work. My gut is the art, he started with this other artist and didn't change it, decided to change it, or just didn't get around to changing it, which was still a mistake. If you're an artist... Don't be sitting there when you're creating work, looking at someone else's work as you're doing it. Think in your head, all right, what would a dragon look like and draw that? Because then you're going to be much less likely to be accused of having copied someone if you're just coming up with it originally. I'll give you a real good example of your question in the copyright world where we've, we've had. So, for example, imagine you're a software company and you want to make software that does something similar to someone else's. The best way to isolate yourself from any copyright infringement is you put that person in a clean room, make sure they never saw the other code and say, I want software that does X, Y, Z. And so they know, have no access to the written code, which is copyrighted, and they just create their own code to do whatever you're saying. That's the best way to do it. And that's called the clean room. And so we've talked about having software re- created in that clean room and you can do the same thing with artwork say hey draw me a picture of a dragon and make sure the person's never seen this other dragon they don't have access to the dragon and they aren't searching on the internet for dragons because that would be a dead giveaway (laughs) but 
again, with the clean room in the software context, I can see it, right? You, you're talking about protecting this person from a specific software implementation and the chances of them having access to it are pretty small. But if I want to sit and draw a dragon, I know I, just by knowing the concept of a dragon, I know I've seen dragons out there before. So this particular artist seemed like he sat down with the dragon and drew it. But if I just draw, right. drew a dragon on my desk here, like I can't forget that I saw, you know, the desolation of smog, Lord of the Rings movie. You know, I, <laughs> I can't forget that I've seen depictions of dragons in, in all these other places. So what is this? So make sure it doesn't look like that. So you know what the desolation of smog looked like. And so don't don't draw that. I think the dragon's name is Smog, smog right? Yeah, Smog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't draw Smog. And don't draw Pete from uh, Pete's Dragon or any other dragon you've ever. Don't make sure that when you're done, you look at that and you're like, oh, that's an original looking dragon. And so your approach to that is to take a look at it and say, I've created this work. And I can cross-check it against other instances of things that I know, and it doesn't look like that. And I feel comfortable yeah, so, with that analysis. So let me, I'll give you a real-world example. I had a client who asked me the same thing. So they create artwork for T-shirts. And so what the client does is every time, because he has a bunch of employees, when the employee comes with him saying, all right, here, I got this artwork. Here's an idea. He, he requires the employee to keep documented what inspired him or her to create the work. What did you look at when you were creating the work? And then he'll sit down and make sure that it doesn't look anything like the stuff that they used as the inspiration to look at or create the work. And so he requires them to do, and then they, they guarantee that, that this is nothing's been copied and that this is now original work. And so by forcing the artist to kind of, Hey, here's what's inspired me and what's what I've thought about, what I looked at, it makes it easier to say, like you said, okay, like the clean room, I'm not copying these two things. And then it also is a good paper trail if there ever is type of claim. Because someone they could say, hey, look, I think these two are alike. And now he could say, no, no, here's the file on this. Here's all the things that my artist looked at. You could see all these 50 things that are very similar to what you did, but totally different now. And here's what the the ultimate work did, which is all different from all these and yours too. So that's a good way to insulate your artist or your employees from having claims of copyright because they prove that they independently created this and it's different. So that's one way to do it. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. At least with the paper trail, even if you could say that two things were similar, you'd be able to come back and say, but look, what I did was X, Y, and Z, independent creation, not copying. And that's going right. to be a good place to be. Yeah, that's going to be great evidence because you can imagine, let's say the Robin Thicke case, if Robin Thicke said, no, 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 here's the music I had listened to and I had thought about when I wrote this. You can see it. You can see that it's much different from this. I wasn't even thinking of Marvin Gaye, didn't even come into the picture. And so really, they're, they're really the fact that it's at all similar is just pure coincidence. And you have a good argument. That wouldn't have saved George Harrison, who claim to have never heard of the song and just in an elevator. (laughs) But if George Harrison had again, documented where he actually came up with the song, that might've been enough to sway a jury to say, okay, I don't think he actually did have access. I won't because that, because it's only a presumption if they're too, if they're very similar and you can overcome that presumption, as I said, with evidence that it was independently derived. George Harrison made a, a parody song after that, by the way, called this song. 
Yes, this song, correct. Yeah. Uh, the, the video is actually very funny because it takes place in an L.A. courthouse. And so uh, he's very much making fun of his lawsuit, which cost him a lot of money uh, for his. It was money that was going to into his trust. So he, he claimed he didn't really feel it as much as he might you might expect. But nonetheless, took, still annoyed. Do you think that he took a fair or unfair reputational hit after that controversy? Uh, I mean... I don't think it hurt his reputation at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I, if you ask people on the street about George Harrison, they're not going to mention his copyright lawsuits. <laughs> no, not George Harrison. Yes. George Harrison. Yeah, nor do I think it's going to. I don't think it's going to affect Ed Sheeran either. I mean, he's very popular. He's an amazing artist. I don't think this will have any effect on him. Robin Thicke. Uh, Robin Thicke's more of a one-hit wonder type-ish, so it may may bleed uh, over into him and his reputation but i still think at the end of the day none of these guys uh need to have a uh a gofundme page set up so they can put food <laughs> on the table certainly not george harrison that's for sure of course yes <laughs> <laughs> that's right so i find it a wonderful area of law because it is people are always asking me questions about ip about copyrights trademarks because it's it's so now intellectual property has become so mainstream, so much more so when I first started. When I first started, like uh, there was very few IP attorneys, and now you have much more kind of uh, everyday folk knowing a little bit about it. That's really interesting. When I first started my career, like shortly out of law school, just a year or two, I got a call from a friend, like a desperate, "Oh my God, my world is ending!" call because she had gotten a cease and desist letter about a trademark that she had just chosen, a mark that she had just chosen for a brand that she wanted to start. And she was devastated about potentially losing the name from what appeared to be maybe not a rock solid, but a legit um, trademark cease and desist letter. And I remember saying, hey, look, isn't the end of the world. You, you need to be careful. And like, we're just going to do X, Y, and Z to get, to, to get around it and pick a different way to go. But I agree. I, I've noticed since that time that there's so people are so much more aware of these types of issues now than, than they were even 10 years ago. And I focus most of my practice on patents, but trademarks and copyrights are super interesting because they're accessible to everybody and everybody needs to care about these things to get through a business that you're starting, a creation that you're creating, you know, an artwork. Like if you don't understand this stuff, you could have some real problems if you don't take oh, it. Oh, absolutely. It All right. I'm going to leave your listeners with one very strong piece of advice about copyrights, not quite in the area we we're talking about, but it definitely deals with copyrights. And it's a, a big mistake I see a lot of individuals and companies make. And I think you'll find this kind of fascinating. So copyrights are owned by the creator, by the author. So if you're talking about pictures, they're owned by the photographer, talking about artists, owned by the person who drew the, the artwork. And so the only way to transfer ownership of a copyright is via a written agreement. So some instrument of writing. You know, a contract is usually where it comes up. But uh, email would work too. That would be a writing. And so what I see often happen is you're starting up your business and you're like, hey, I want someone to design my web page or someone to take some photos of my my product that I want to post on Amazon. And like they'll pay the guy or woman $500 and say, here, take some pictures for me or design my website. And they say, oh, great, thanks. Here, thanks for the 500 bucks. Here's your pictures. And then they're done. And they never realized that the copyright never was assigned. And so that copyright remains 
with the artist, with the photographer or the web designer. And then years later, if you want, if someone has stealed your, stolen your website, for example, and you want to sue, you now have to go back to your web developer because they own the copyright and get the rights back from that person. It's a real hassle. And I'm going to tell you, I'll, I'll leave you with one funny example. I've never seen this come up in court. I'd love to see it come up because I would wonder what the court would do. But I'll, let me paint the scenario for you. So now knowing that you have to have a written agreement, and it's one of the few areas of law which specify you have to have agreement in writing. Let's say you and your family are at Disneyland, okay? You're, you're out there. You're, you have a great view of the castle, and you're like, oh, I want to get my family's picture in front of this castle. So you flag down some stranger, and you hand them your phone, and you say, hey, take a picture of me with uh, in front of the castle. And the stranger says, great, you know, takes a picture, and it looks. you say thank you, you get your camera back. Looks wonderful. You then post your picture on Facebook. Some company then steals that picture and uses it to sell product. And you're like, well, I want to sue them. <laughs> you're in trouble because the copyright, even though it's a, your family and it's on your phone, is owned by that stranger you met in Disneyland who took the picture. Whose name uh, you didn't take, whose address you don't have. <laughs> of course. Yeah, trying to find that owner is going to be impossible. You're, you're never going to find it. And so it, it's always been a question of me how the law would treat that area because there's clearly no written agreement. <laughs> there's nothing in writing. You, you handed the guy the phone and he took the picture. And so well, that's a, just something to ponder. But anyway, I raise this issue because it's a warning for people. Make sure you ever pay anyone to do anything for your company that you just have a written agreement. It could be a simple contract. It could even be an email if you want to make it that easy. But that says that you own the copyright in whatever work you're paying them to create. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the Mint's Exclusive Rights IP podcast. I had a great time in this conversation, and I hope you did too. And um, Hopefully we can have you back on soon. Absolutely. Love to be on again. Dan, thanks so much. And I hope everyone enjoyed.